Welcome to Books and Beyond with your host, Alison. Join us for half an hour of information, entertainment, reading recommendations and beyond. Brought to you by Auckland Libraries. I know this girl and she works in a and welcome to Books and Beyond Literary Lounge with Alison and Inika. It's brought to you from our home studios. Kia ora, Inika. Kia ora, Alison. Well, look, it's that time of year again when the Ockham New Zealand Book Awards Super 16 shortlist has been announced. Yeah. Was it all over the news and was it on the Saturday afternoon telly? Not yet, but it will be. Not quite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But it's look, it's really exciting times, yeah, isn't it? it? Is. And the winner's we... going to be announced um, in early May. Yeah, there's some great talent on display. It's very exciting for all the the people involved, and we can't wait to see um, how it all plays out. There's definitely something for everyone this time around, isn't there? Um, you know, we've got lives and families, we've got place, history, and even myth. There has always been a bit of controversy, of course. Every time the list comes out, there is, you know, who made it in, who didn't, but there always is. It's always lots to talk about. Yeah, oh, look, it's a great conversation starter. And I was thinking about this over the weekend. You know, when you think about narrowing down a, an extremely competitive list of 160 entries oh. and you've got to narrow it down to a short list of 16, I mean, what a huge task. And, you know, I was thinking so much of literary judging is, is really subjective. Yeah. It's a fine art, isn't it? <laughs> it sure is, yeah. More of an art than a science in some ways. Because, mm. you know, imagine if the finalists were announced and there was absolutely no reaction from the public um, <laughs> and all the armchair experts. I mean, at least we can have a good, robust conversations about these choices. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think it's a, a really good thing to have a bit of an Ockham shockham. Um, <laughs> so, look, Let's get down to, to business and um, we'll talk, because we're going to talk today about the four finalists for the Jan Medlicott Acorn Prize for Fiction of 2022. So today we're going to be talking about uh, A Good Winter by Gigi Fenster. We're going to um, talk about Entanglement by Brian Walpert, Greta and Valden by Rebecca K. Riley, and Kurangai Tuku by Fetty Hediaka. That's so, right. um, do you want to start us off, Finneka? Yes, we will. And we're going to start off with um, Kura Naituku. So, Kura Naituku is by author and playwright Fiti Hereaka, who is, who is from Ngāti Tūwharitoa in Te Arawa. And it reimagines the legend of Hatupatu from the perspective of the bird woman. And that's, of course, traditionally the monster of the story, if you remember. It explores um, Kura Naituku's non-linear journey through the space of potential of te kore, the darkness of te po, into the light of life on earth amongst mortals and then life after death in the many-layered realms of Rarohinga, the underworld. Now, this is such an absorbing book. You will be Merged in it and not want to come out for a bit. It's it's really amazing. Um, Kuranaisuku exists without form and and um, she's sort of sitting in this space with no beginning and no end at the start of the book. Um, eventually, the birds will her into life and she comes into the body of a koteku, 
a, very, a giant kōtukwe, I should say. Mm. Now, she's entombed during the eruption that creates Lake Taupo and then is, re- is hatched from the earth, from the whenua. The arrival of Tangata Whenua, or the song makers as they're called in the book, marks the end of the age of birds' rule and she's transfigured again by their presence and by their stories. There's a lovely quote in the book. The story and I were no longer separate. They had made me woman. Mm. Tuki has no voice of her own, but she uses the bodies and minds of the birds, the manu, to help her understand the world that she's now in and to help her communicate. She becomes really fascinated by the songmakers' relationships with each other and with nature. It's so different from the birds. Um, also, she loves their skills and their stories. And she herself becomes skilled in the art of araranga, ar- uh, weaving. She snares Hatupatu, who's the portiki or youngest son of his whanau, and the portiki shows up quite a lot in Māori language. Um, Maui was one of those as well. Mm. Now, Hatupatu is known for his silver tongue. Now, a game of captor and captive begins in the book, with his, and those roles do shift and turn as the book continues. Uh, she says, uh, cuckoo he was, yet I welcomed him to my nest. And we know what the cuckoo does, of course. Mm-hmm. Each finds themselves drawn to the other's difference, and they also try and wield influence over the other. They're using gifts, language, desire, and in Hatupati's case, it's violent force. And I note here that this does include um, a description of a sexual assault. Kurunaituk has this complex love for Hatupatu, and this is despite his treatment of her. But I tell you what, that love turns to hurt and rage when he destroys what she's created and makes a break for home. There's this amazing dramatic shift of pace um, about halfway through this section, or actually approaching the end of this section of the book. Um, there's a rising horror of the chase where Kurunaituku is springing through the treetops and summoning all the birds of the Nahere, the bush, to growl as Hatupatu cowers in hiding. If you know the myth, then you'll know how it ends. But in this version, the ending's just the beginning. It's another beginning. With worlds of pleasure, war, struggle and transition still to come for Kuna Naitoku, she meets the Atua, the gods and entities of Raruhinga. Now the world that she's created in Fitihereaka uh, uh, is created in Kuna Naitoku, is visceral and sensual. We have body fluids and dark shifting waters, hair, flesh, feathers, seaweed and harakeke, flax. There's sensory detail of texture, colour and form right through the novel. And I think, you know, this really comes from um, her, she's a very creatively um, talented person in so many areas. She's um, a crafter of beautiful objects um, as well as um, uh, a wordsmith. And really that's that's woven right into her writing here. It's, it makes it um, the description so rich. You can actually visit her Instagram feed if you want to see how she brings big Kuranaituku energy to life uh, off the page as well as on it. Now, this is really a story about stories. It's about our own stories and the ones that others tell about us and how language can create and shape, give life and destroy. It recognises the powerful roles of the storyteller, the reader and the listener and how each of those takes what they want from those stories and reshapes them, making sense of them for themselves and for the audience and to suit their own needs as well. Through the sharing of stories, we find 
and this is another quote from the book, 100 lifetimes or more able to be lived by a single being. A beautiful description of what it's like to pick up a book or listen to stories of people. Now, Kurunaituki took 10 years to reach its final form, and man, it was worth the wait, and you can see the work on the page. Hideaka's poetic, flowing writing and her careful attention to detail in the pacing and structure shows just how committed she is to grounding the story within Te Ao Māori. And it also shows her background in theatre. There's some beautiful meta elements um, where Kura Naituku speaks directly to the reader um, and also to the reader's experience of reading that book. Um, if you've enjoyed those retellings of Greek myths by Madeline Miller and Natalie Haynes, Pat Barker, all those sort of people, then I think you've got to get ready for another whole other level of incredible Indigenous storytelling here. Now, I must mention the production of the book. The book itself is a thing of beauty. Um, the story and the formatting are interwoven together. Um, readers can have the choice of where to begin and end with two front covers, a flipped uh, story, one dark, one light. You can start in Rarohinga or you can start in the world of man. And both stories have the um, the story of Hatu Patu and his brothers right at the centre and overlapping. It's quite amazing. Um, experience to read it. I must admit I only realised um, when I started after I finished reading it that my library copy had sort of manipulated where I started because of the placement of the spine labelling which is a bit tricksy <laughs> but I would recommend <laughs> wherever this, if you get it from the library, do make your own choice or even better, read it twice over yourself from both sides or get a friend or a book club and split them apart and make everybody start from either side and then come together and, and compare compare notes it's an immersive, unforgettable experience to read it. And we do have lots of copies to go around. So I urge you to get in the queue right now. You'll probably end up buying it because it is one that um, that has so much to um, to offer up on repeat reads. But, um, I'm going to leave you with a quote from the book um, from Kura Naitiki, um, an enticement to see now through my eyes. Let my words fill your mind. Let me in. Oh, thanks, Seneca. That just sounds so beautiful. And, um, yeah. And, um, what a great way to segue onto the next book because, um, the next one is also quite nonlinear in its journey. So, um, I kind of hate to leave, um, Ku Ranganai Tuku, um, at the moment, but, um, let's, um, move to Entanglement by Brian Walpert. Um, now, the author, Brian Walpert, he, um, has, uh, he wrote a prize winning novella, Late Sonata. Um, he's the author of a short story collection, four books of poetry, and two of, of literary criticism. Now, he's originally from the United States. He received his PhD in English from the University of Denver in Colorado. Now, he lives in Auckland these days and works as a professor in creative writing at Massey University. Now, the when I was reading the jacket blurb for Entanglement, um, it said that it's a tale of love, desperation and physics. <laughs> so knowing me, of course, that sold me straight away because <laughs> those three things are totally in my wheelhouse. Yeah, so right. Um, and look, I'd add three more things that I believe the book is about. So um, I would say grief, poetry and philosophy. So the story consists of three tangled or 
intertwined strands of narrative. We've got a memory-impaired time traveller, and he's attempting to correct a tragic mistake that he'd made in 1976 when, as of right and child, he abandoned his brother Daniel on a frozen lake in Baltimore. We have a writer in residence at the Centre for Time in Sydney in 2011 who becomes romantically involved with a philosopher from New Zealand. And then we have an author at a lake retreat in New Zealand in 2019 who uses workshop prompts to explore the disintegration of his marriage and the, the tragedies that have marked his life. So we first meet the aspiring novelist Paul, who is the writer-in-residence at the Centre for Time in Sydney. And this place actually exists. Mm. It sounds amazing. It does. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to visit there. So now, um, Paul is writing a time travel novel and is having to get to great to grips with Einstein's theory of relativity, quantum mechanics, quantum entanglement, and all sorts of yummy kind of fourth dimensional stuff that holds time-space continuum and the various conundrums that we see surrounding modern physics. And he's trying to work out whether it's viable to actually go back and forth in time. He knows that it would certainly be very useful to be able to travel back in time and and change certain outcomes. You know, those decisions we've made, omissions, errors, accidents we may have caused, even buses and trains that we may have missed. So it's it's really a bit like a kind of a scientific sliding doors at times. Um, it's and, and Paul's in love with a, a New Zealand philosopher called Anise. And I love this part because together they deploy this real nerd bonding language to navigate their way through the human heart. It's actually quite romantic. And I really love their relationship. Um, at one stage, they're lying in bed and he's telling her all about E equals MC squared and going into great detail about this world-changing theory of relativity. And Anise asks him, she says, Paul, how did you ever get past first base in high school? <laughs> and um, he he responds by saying, I was just going to say that perhaps we were made to go faster than light and so then she says how did you even make it through high school (laughs) so yeah look I completely lolled at that but I sort of spat out my tea almost but I managed to to save the book don't worry um and there's other things that may bring a smile to your face they they certainly did with me um if you return to the past can you still put sugar in your coffee even though you've given up sugar in your future which is now another past (laughs) so um it's kind of like back to the future meets inception but in a really grown-up way Uh, i found the language beautiful it was very clear but very meditative and it describes these really mundane moments of the daily world like catching a bus or making a meal or walking down a local street it felt dreamlike to me but but very clear and present without the danger, of course. Now, as the the novel progresses, the reader 
you start to wonder if the three stories are really separate or are they the one story? Mm. And is the time traveller actually travelling? Can the past be changed? So answers to these questions, they slowly emerge and the characters' lives do become entangled. It's a beautifully nuanced tale. I absolutely love this book and I totally nerded out on it. (laughs) So look, it's a novel about time, the scientific concept of time, the human experience of time, the incomprehensibility of time, and the emotional and psychological ravages of time. And so it's about this non-linearity of time Mm. that we were talking about earlier. Um, You know, we might consign this to some sort of unreachable quantum theory, but you know, when we look at the inner lives of the characters in the book, we see a, the universality and an everydayness about their nonlinear memories and their dreams for the future. So it's asked these questions like, how do we remember events from our past? Do we suppress some aspects of incidents when we might have actually been at fault? And do we all become unreliable narrators of our own life stories, Mm. you know, which I suspect we probably do. So the novel's got a really beautiful atmospheric sense of place. Readers will recognise the Sydney Harper side, the the landscapes of Aotearoa from the snow in the South Island to the the lush warmth of of the north. And many readers will have seen that um, the melancholy beauty of the northeastern states of America. Now, the book Entanglement, it's been called erudite, romantic and deeply moving. And it's been described also as a story that will unfold like a set of dominoes arranged in the shape of your heart. But, yeah, isn't that beautiful? But look, if I had to provide a one-word review for Entanglement, it would be this one, and that's exquisite. Oh, high praise, Alison. Thank you. That was a beautiful review. Well, I tell you what, we will be talking about unreliable narrators for our next (laughs) book too. Um, I don't know that I will call it exquisite. Um, This book is A Good Winter by Gigi Fenster. And we've got it in our fiction collection. And it's also on eBook and Libby and Overdrive. And it's on eAudiobook as well on Borrowbox. So plenty of options. Now, as I say, I wouldn't say this is exquisite, but Man, it's really hard to put down when you start, for certain. Now, um, Sophie in our book is the first person we we hear, um, hear hear about, I should say. Now, she's suffering from grief and postnatal depression in the weeks following the sudden death of her husband, her young husband, and the birth of their first child. So she's dealing with a lot all at one time. Now, Sophie's mum, Lara, drops everything to look after them both. And so does her new neighbour and a new friend, 60-something Olga, who really must be there to support Lara. Now, Olga quickly makes herself indispensable in the in Sophie's home. She's changing the nappy, she's making tea, and she's sending away friends and visitors. You know, Olga reckons that they'll just make Sophie feel worse. They'll disrupt the baby's sleep schedule that she's so carefully established. And anyway, they're not really needed because Lara and Olga have everything under control. Now, this entire book is a monologue from Olga's point of view. And make no mistake, Olga knows best. Right away, she's told us that Sophie needs to stop moping around in bed and milking it with her mother and just get on with it. But there again... 
Sophie also can't be trusted to make good choices for the baby because she's depressed and, you know, she doesn't really know what she's doing anyway. She's a new mum. She's got no idea. Now, in second thoughts, maybe Sophie should just stay in bed out of the way and let Olga and Lara look after everything together. So we have our unreliable narrator clearly in place here. We get lots of glimpses of Olga's childhood through her perspective and her eyes, of course, and you get to find out that the loss of her mother at a formative age has left her with some major trust issues around relationships. Now, her childhood memories and then her adult understanding of what really happened around um, her mother um, leaving, leaving slash dying, we're not entirely sure to be quite honest, and also who was to blame, are really mixed up, they're murky and warped in her own mind and there's lots left out unanswered both for her and for the for the reader. Now to those in her circle, always uh, Olga is always there when you need her but also she's sometimes there when you don't need her. Um, I guess we've always, some, lots of us have met people like that before. <laughs> the reader, however, is getting the full blast of Olga's own vitriolic and judgmental thoughts about everybody else around her. In her mind, everyone, including her hapless younger brother Brian, is false, fawning, flawed, and basically just not worthy of her or her time or her time at all. But there is one exception: the lovely Lara, who lives um, uh, upstairs from her is warm, generous, kind and attractive, but not too attractive. You know, you can't be too attractive. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, otherwise, you'll get um, Olga's beady eye on your long manicure and your um, dyed hair. Now, finally, she's met someone, Olga's met someone who will meet her high standards. She pins everything on the friendship with Laura and she keeps a very close eye and ear on Olga's movements, but she can't be everywhere at once. Now, readers who like unreliable narrators and domestic-based crimes around the cuckoo in the nest, there's the cuckoo again, yeah. should definitely <laughs> put this one on their TBR. But um, be aware that since you are in Olga's head the entire time and she's she's not really in the best state of mind. Uh, it is a bit like um, that scene in A Clockwork Orange. You can't look away from the nasty. Oh, that one. Yeah. 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 <laughs> now, I don't want to get into the plot too deeply for fear of spoilers because this is a psychological thriller, um, but it's fair to say that Olga's bitterness may not be to everybody's taste. Um, she's clearly a very lonely person and she's in need of some serious therapy, So, but I think that readers may find that their hearts harden towards her. I've actually read that um, even the author, Gigi Fenster, tucked this manuscript away for a bit because she needed some distance from her her main character. Now, this one really reminded me a bit of um, Otessa Moshfeg's book from a couple of years ago, Death in Her Hands. Um, and in that one, an elderly, lonely woman becomes increasingly obsessed with investigating a crime that may or may not have actually happened. Yeah. Um, I got really got me thinking actually about that continuing popularity of psychological thrillers where there's a young and attractive bad girl um, as the main character. It made me think about whether when does our fascination with these bad girls flip into repugnance, and is it when they're not bad girls anymore, when they're a bit wrinkly and a bit, mm-hmm. you know they've gone further along that path? Do age and beauty make a difference um, to our reaction to these these women? 
Now, I'd say this is probably the most commercial book of the four. Um, as I say, it's a psychological thriller, which are very hot, uh, of course. Um, it's in a setting. Um, the setting is a sort of town, anonymous town or city. It's got some mountains and farmland, a decent drive away. So this could be set in New Zealand, Australia, maybe Britain. I think it's heading, you know, they're looking for international coverage here. Mm. Um, Fenster's writing is tight, tense and claustrophobic and it's very in keeping with Olga's near constant state of high alert. The ending is horrifying but to be honest it seems almost inevitable and I kind of had a had a view of where it was going to go um, before it came. It was a well-written and absorbing read and you know, you never know, it might be a turn up for the books. Um, I, I think I'd probably be surprised to see it on the winner's podium, but you just never know. You just never know, do you? Yeah. So, yeah. but um, yeah. Oh, it sounds so good. Can't wait to read that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, because um, in an earlier episode, you gave us an amazing um, review of Greta and Valden. Um, that was on our Pride Love Edition episode. So, I was wondering if you, if you've had the energy to to give us a bit of a recap. Oh, sure. Absolutely. I will do that for you. Very happy to talk about Greta and Valden. So Greta and Valden is by Rebecca K. Riley, um, and it's available in our fiction collection and is an Overdrive ebook. although you may be in the list for a bit of a wait, I have to say. It's, yeah. um, it's gone gangbusters. <laughs> now, this is a, I described it as a lively, lovely, and hyper-local debut novel um, by a Tamaki Makoto's newest hit novelist, Rebecca K. Riley. It's set in Auckland and it features queer 20-something siblings, Valdan and Greta, and their multilingual, multicultural, multidiverse circle of family and friends that has enough room for everybody and all their baggage. Now, we're jumping into... Um, Two people's minds this time, so both Greta and Valdan. We find out about their many insecurities, all their favourite things, the urges that they follow and all those that they're suppressing. They're both um, warriors and overthinkers, but they find a lot of pleasure in the little things. Um, they're always up for a laugh um, and they're ever hopeful of finding their forever love um, following the footsteps of their, their parents who are happily married, or are they? That comes up mm. later. <laughs> They're very funny and smart. There's huge amounts of hilarious one-liners and hyper-observant side reckons in this book, which um, really keep the pace up and keep you wanting more. Now, I really loved how um, Greta and Valden had really strong love and loyalty for each other, you know, always thinking about each other, um, you know, worrying and doing little things, um, to, to help each other and they also are also always um, connected to their large family and that their family underpins everything even when they're out being busy as hip young things on the scene. Um, it was a beautiful family to spend time with, um, you know, very open-hearted and open-door policy whanau um, uh, in, uh, with Greta and Valden and um, lots of people in the mix. Um, luckily, there's a nice list at the beginning which tells you all the characters' names, and that is helpful because there's at least 18 or 20 characters to keep track of. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot for all my puppies. Actually, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you get to hang out in central Auckland having drinks on the curb. You can bust into the leafy suburbs with them. You can jump on a plane down south and then across to Buenos Aires. The siblings are dealing with unrequited crushes, confidence issues, culturally incompetent colleagues 
family drama and of course this is an Auckland story the cost of living mm-hmm. <laughs> and Rebecca Riley's observant eye and her feel for the hustle and flow of our little big city and also the intertwined intergenerational family friend groups that are such a big part of life for so many people who live in Auckland they're just spot on they really stuck struck a chord with Auckland readers um, who I you know I think maybe they don't often get to see themselves in their city in fiction and they're loving it um, certainly it's gone gangbusters as I said they've gone gaga for Greta and Valden at Auckland Libraries um, in an interview with Kete Books Riley said that she would really love it if another, uh, any queer person person with OCD or any of the more nerdy Māori as she puts it um, felt somewhat represented in this books uh, I think I can say with confidence you know looking at the request list which is last time I looked was 400 <laughs> I can say with confidence that lots of the above and many more people besides are finding it loving it and looking forward to hearing more from this new author yeah, it's just a glorious, glorious book, isn't it? And, you know, I was thinking about these four books that we've, we've talked about today. There's just so many threads that, that connect them um, and connect the the narratives. And, and maybe that's um, what was uppermost in, in the judges' minds. Who knows? But um, a reminder to our listeners that we've got a real wealth of fabulous Aotearoa writing of all types in our libraries and plenty of room on the shelves for for all and um, and and anything you want. Just let our, let our librarians know what authors and, and genres you like to read and they'll find you a book by a Kiwi that will absolutely knock your socks off. Um, really, so um, in, a, in a future podcast, not too far away, we will be looking um, at the finalists in the general non-fiction category and, and maybe even some more. So we can't wait to do that for you. So to our listeners... Look, thanks so much for tuning in today. Take care and happy reading. Haere rā, ka kite ana. This program was brought to you by Auckland Libraries. Find us online at aucklandlibraries.govt.nz and catch the program next Sunday at 9.35pm on 104.6 FM or anytime online at planetaudio.org.nz slash books and beyond. Every day, every day.